Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. After two days of the worst bombardment of this war, people in Gaza wonder how or if they'll survive. There has been continuous tank shelling. There are airstrikes at night. Well, it's been going on for weeks now. The war between Israel and Hamas has dominated the news. The mounting death toll, the hostages, the humanitarian crisis. But when Peter Schwartzstein landed in Israel a day before Hamas launched its shocking and deadly attack, he was actually hoping to tell a good news story about Palestinians and Israelis. Peter, what was the story that you wanted to tell? So I work in a field called climate security, which is basically looking at the ways in which climate change is contributing to instability and, and violence. And yet, as you said, ironically, I had come to, to Israel and the Palestinian territories to, to try and tell the flip side of that dispiriting uh, field in which I work. And that's the ways in which Israelis and Palestinians have actually used the environment and water uh, as a means of, uh, up to a kind of a limited, modest point, uh, building trust between both sides and building a, a degree of peace and a degree of cooperation uh, in ways that appeared at least to be kind of somewhat removed from the wider dynamics of the conflict. But as we have seen over, over the past two weeks, um, ultimately nothing is, is immune from, from the wider situation. At this point, frankly, nobody wants to talk about environmental peace building at a time when so many thousands are, are dying. Well, we are going to talk about just that, environmental peace building. I'm Laura Lynch, and this is What on Earth, where we bring you a world of climate solutions. Now, Peter Schwartzstein is a fellow at two think tanks that are based in Washington, D.C. He's also an environmental journalist, and he's working on a book about climate security. Peter, you were in Israel to tell that story about peace building, staying in Jerusalem, and then you heard the sounds of war breaking out. What do you remember from that day? So even though Gaza is not close to Jerusalem, it is nevertheless about 70 kilometers from kind of the northerly tip of the of the strip to Jerusalem. And as a consequence, um, basically everybody in, in central Israel and, and large parts of the West Bank woke up on Saturday morning to this barrage of, of rockets um, that had uh, accompanied the, the large kind of Hamas uh, ground incursion. And it's a kind of a hell of a sight just watching these rockets being mostly, not entirely, but mostly intercepted by, by kind of Israeli Iron Dome projectiles. And you hear these sort of loud, slightly menacing detonations high above you. You see the, the kind of wisps of smoke. But more than anything, there's the um, just the kind of, I guess, rattling, stressful nature of the, the warning sirens that just keep you on edge certainly kept me on edge um, for almost the entirety of that Saturday. Based on, on your reporting in, in the region, can, can you tell us more about the environmental collaboration that had been going on um, between Israelis and Palestinians and, and also people in other neighboring countries? So back in the 1990s, during that particularly hopeful era in which it looked as if 
peace was was imminent. I mean, from from about the Oslo Accords onwards, there was a, a period of years when uh, the expectation among Israeli and Palestinian and other environmentalists was that their services would be required to deal with the fallout from kind of untrammeled development, from kind of out of control tourism, out of control construction uh, of a sort that was just expected um, when or if these these parties to the conflict were able to put aside their differences. And then as that kind of that hope began to fade from from the late 90s, these environmentalists were able to sort of reinvent themselves by kind of realizing that actually environment could be a a useful tool with which to to maintain ties between uh, communities that that might otherwise struggle to to communicate. And over the past four or five years, you've had a lot of really successful cooperation uh, across borders, much of which has been kept pretty quiet in order to not sort of jeopardize some of these efforts. Um, but just for for example, this is a an intensely water vulnerable region. I mean, going well beyond the Jordan Basin, even you've got about six percent of the world's population and about 1.5% of its freshwater. Um, And as a consequence, there was an enormous vested interest on basically everybody's part to both bolster the environment, to bolster water access, to help the transition to renewable energies on everybody's part, while simultaneously trying to bank a bit of a a peace dividend through those tight connections that people had, had built up. There have been organizations leading these kinds of cross-border projects. There's Equal Peace Middle East and the Arava Institute, for example. Can you tell me what you know about them and the success stories they have? Definitely. I mean, so to both of these organizations in particular, and, and there are others, but these are perhaps the, the two best known and, and two most expensive. Equal Peace has um, championed something that's known as Project Prosperity, which is an effort to build kind of really sort of healthy mutual interdependencies between Israel and Jordan and Palestine, by which Israel and and sort of the Gaza Strip part of Palestine would uh, avail of their Mediterranean access in order to produce desalinated water for, for Jordan, which is one of the most water-impoverished countries on earth. And in exchange, Jordan, with its kind of large quantities of kind of beautifully sunny desert, would produce uh, large quantities of, of renewable energy for, for Israel and for Palestine, thereby helping them to transition away from fossil fuels and, and make up for their um, Paris climate commitments. At a local level, and this is often where you see much of the most successful stuff, you've had individuals, academics, scholars on, on both sides of the divide who have got together with, with various villages, with local leaders, with tribal elders in, in parts of the Negev desert, in order to try and kind of improve their lives through the introduction of things like solar energy in places where there's nothing but kind of diesel, sort of dirty powered generators. There's, there's an awful lot of these projects in, in different parts of the West Bank and, and central Israel. The peace building component uh, to this kind of joint climate action is so interesting. I just uh, want you to listen to EcoPeace's Israel director, Gidon Bromberg, talking about this at a COP27 panel last year. Here, here he is in a video that was posted to YouTube by EcoPeace. A renewable Middle East is about seeing the climate crisis not just as a threat multiplier, but as an opportunity, as an engine of common interest that creates healthy interdependencies, Middle East and European-wide. Now that's really interesting. He uses that term threat multiplier but also engine of common interest, healthy interdependence. So 
Pull those things apart for me. How does working together to fight climate change help bring stability? For the most part, there's just the recognition that these are just a bunch of extremely shared challenges, and they are doubly so in an area as extremely small as Israel and Palestine and Jordan over the Jordan River. It doesn't matter where you, you are in this small patch of land, you're suffering from the same bouts of kind of ever more intense extreme heat that are coming your way. And so you've got, you've got the shared challenge, and then it doesn't really matter how much or not these communities like one another, um, but they have a, a vested interest in ensuring that their kind of natural environment around their respective towns and respective communities are not um, sullied with environmental degradation. Um, the idea perhaps inherent in environmental peace building is that this can be a kind of a bridge or an entry point towards building trust and building momentum uh, that can allow for cooperation in other possibly more charged fields. Um, prior to October 7th, the, the transboundary work at a state level between Israel and Jordan and, and Palestinian territories was, was kind of real world-leading um, impressive stuff. Which makes it all that much more difficult, I suppose, to, to see what's happened. I mean, we know that this conflict um, between Israel and the Palestinians in Gaza and in the West Bank, it, it's gone on for so many years. There's another aspect to this. How, the, how does all of that, uh, the bombing, the rockets, killing, displacement of people and destruction exacerbate the effects of climate change? On a, on a global level, or certainly on a regional level, the most important problem is, is the way in which this has just sucked a lot of the diplomatic energy out of the room. So in the run-up to the next COP, COP28, which is to be held in Dubai in, in late November, early December, I mean, turn on the news and, and there's remarkably little about, about climate change at this pretty pivotal moment, is, a, is an extremely sad in, indictment of the distraction, for, for want of a better way of putting it, at this, at this very important time. But then beyond that, conflict is an extremely uh, environmentally and, and climate destructive phenomenon. Um, so to see the, the swathe of destruction both in the Gaza Strip and, and around it, kind of large numbers of rockets and, and, and munitions from both sides sort of falling and, and torching this kind of bone dry undergrowth is just sort of exacting the, the kinds of environmental destruction that, that now even more than ever we can ill afford. Well, earlier I mentioned the Arava Institute, which is an academic and research institute, and we spoke with the executive director, Tarek Abu Hamad, who is in East Jerusalem, about the war and the future of environmental peacekeeping. We are used to different types of cycles of uh, violence and military operations, but this one is, is different. The feelings for revenge, it's, uh, it's everywhere. In our academic program, we host like one-third Arabic speakers, Israeli Arabs, Palestinians from the West Bank and also Gaza, Jordanians, Moroccans, Sudanese students, one-third Jewish Israelis, and one-third internationals. We bring these students together, not only to study the environment, climate, ecology, environmental law, environmental science, but through this academic program, to build understanding of the other. So they listen to each other, they hear different stories, they build a kind of understanding, and based on that understanding, they build a trust. We talk with our Gazan partners almost every 
every day. We want to keep that communication channel channel open. Climate unites us, especially here in this region, in the Middle East, when we build a project that uses solar energy for water pumping or for off-grid wastewater treatment systems to recycle the water. We bring people, people together. They sit around one table. And this environmental work gives us the, the chance to see the human in the other, not to look to each other as enemies. And once you see the human in the other, that's a game changer. Well, Peter Schwartzstein, you're struggling to write that last chapter of your book about climate security. And I'm wondering if you could write a chapter that was hopeful, what would it say? So there's the narrative, and I guess I am one of a number of people who's helping to perpetuate it, but that climate change is a sort of an untrammeled negative. And, and of course, for many people and in many, many contexts, it is. But what we were seeing in Israel and Palestine and Jordan in the run-up to October 7th, and what we will hopefully see there in the future, and what we are seeing in other parts of the world, is climate's capacity to bring people together, and so I, I still hope, whether it's centred on Israel-Palestine or, or elsewhere, to, to write a kind of concluding chapter that, that just tries to hammer home that climate change can be an opportunity if seized, um, as, as opposed to just the, the, um, the, the, the holy grim kind of livelihood and, and in many instances life-destroying force that, that we are currently seeing. Peter Schwartzstein, I, I await that book and that last chapter, but thank you very much for talking to me now. Thank you for having me. Well, we've got some time now for some other climate stories in the news. The federal government is backing away from part of the carbon tax. It's declaring an exemption from the tax for home heating oil. It's also doubling the supplement for rebates on heat pumps in rural areas and offering other programs to get homeowners to make the switch. The new measures are in effect nationwide but will have the most impact in eastern Canada. 30% of homes there are still heated by furnace oil. The Climate Action Network applauded the move, saying climate action and affordability go hand in hand. But the Canadian Climate Institute says the exemption sends a signal to emitters and investors that policy can be weakened. In Alberta, the energy regulator is considering allowing oil and gas companies to reduce their environmental liabilities on old well sites before the cleanup is certified complete. The companies can cut their liabilities once they get a reclamation certificate for an old well. Critics say it will make it harder for landowners with old wells to hold companies to account to ensure the work is done properly. And some good news from across the pond. Efforts at rewilding around the United Kingdom are having results, as projects report rebounding forests and animal populations including the endangered hazel dormouse. And I found a picture of that dormouse online and it's really cute. <laughs> and of course, you can read more about climate change in the CBC What on Earth newsletter. You can subscribe to have it delivered to your inbox every week. And we'll be right back. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? 
I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. The worst of this year's wildfire season has come and gone. But there are a lot of people across Canada who are still healing from the record-breaking year. And that journey has been especially hard for the family of Carter Vi. The nine-year-old BC boy died in July from an asthma attack that his family says was made worse by wildfire smoke. His mom, Amber, told me they didn't know how bad the air was that day. He's like, Mom, guess what? And I was like, what, buddy? And he's like, it's free Slurpee day. I heard it on the radio, in the car, and we have to go for Slurpees today. And I was like, okay, dude, we'll go after dinner, and then we'll take the whole family. We'll all go together. Now we're going to hear more from Amber about how she's trying to create meaningful change out of the tragedy. But Carter's death has shed light on the dangers of poor air quality for the most vulnerable people. Now his family is working with the BC Lung Foundation, and they're calling it Carter's Project. Uh, The idea is that we are going to arm the communities that are most impacted uh, with personal air quality monitors so that they have access to data and information about the air they breathe right where they live, right in the neighborhoods they live. That's Christopher Lamb. He's the president and the CEO of the BC Lung Foundation. It's kicking off a fundraiser to place 100 personal air quality monitors in 100 Mile House, and that's Carter's hometown. The monitors are known as purple air sensors. Now, BC's Ministry of Environment says the monitors don't provide the same level of accuracy as ministry-run systems. But Christopher says purple air sensors cost less and they are easier to use and maintain. There are a lot of communities that currently have very good air quality monitoring systems provided by the province. But there are a heck of a lot of people in our province that currently do not have access to real-time information that affects their community. And we want to fix that. Our hope right now is that we will be able to roll out uh, all the air quality monitors, particularly in a 100-mile house this spring, as early as March, uh, ahead of the wildfire season. Uh, So once we finish with a 100-mile house, uh, we will be moving on to other communities that will operate under the umbrella of Carter's project. Uh, where his legacy will really spread across the province. In fact, we've had other provinces reach out to us with hopes that we could expand the project uh, right across the country. Uh, And I think that speaks to the legacy, not just of Carter, but uh, the will of Carter's parents who really stepped forward in the face of a tragedy and said, hey, uh, we want to make sure that Carter's death is going to help other people. Christopher mentioning the will of Carter's parents. Amber Vi, what went through your mind when the BC Lung Foundation reached out to you about this initiative created in your son's name? I think we were proud that Carter was is able to do this even though he's gone. Um, we're super grateful to be able to help other families and make sure that this doesn't happen to other kids. I also never thought that someone was going to reach out to us and say that Carter is going to make a difference. So shocked and proud, I guess. I I get that. (laughs) I I mean, I know this has been such a difficult time for you and your family. So that's, I appreciate all the more you agreeing to come on What on Earth. 
And I'm sorry that I have to bring all this back up for you, but can you remind us how Carter died? It was a day that we were taking the kids to the water park. So he was super excited. He got his towel and his bathing suit and sunscreen and everything ready. His little brief kit that he called it with his puffer and stuff in it. Um, And we left and went to camp. Um, One of the other girls that was running the camp with me, she checked the um, air quality monitoring system that we had available to us. So it's either from Williams Lake or Kamloops. And that morning there was, it was fairly clear. There wasn't a lot of smoke. You couldn't smell the smoke in the air, anything. And Carter seemed great. And the entire time we were at the water or at the park, he didn't even need to take his puffer. Is that Um, unusual? I think to me, it's just unusual in the fact that that was the last day he was alive. The fact that he wasn't suffering all day long makes it a little bit harder to understand, I guess. But around noon, the smoke like all of a sudden rolled in. And so because the smoke had rolled in so bad, we kept all the kids inside for the rest of the day. So we got home and I started like prepping dinner, cutting up veggies and stuff. And Carter went to sit on the couch with his siblings and he was laughing and having a great time. And then all of a sudden he just started coughing like crazy. And so he took his puffer and he was okay for a couple minutes. Then he started coughing again like crazy. So we gave him his puffer again and I gave him his steroid puffer as well. We put him in the bath and I was sitting there talking to him and he was playing with his toys and stuff. And then all of a sudden he just started coughing like crazy. And I gave him his puffer again and I knew that I needed to take him to the hospital when I got to the hospital, I just like drove right into the parking lot and the ambulance, the paramedics were there waiting and they pulled him out of the truck, rushed him inside. I quickly parked the truck and I ran inside and I was there with him the whole time that they were working on him. It was not an asthma attack like I have ever seen him have. And I just told him the whole time, it's okay, buddy. I love you. Just slow down. Just breathe the whole time just telling him how much we loved him and how proud we were of him. Amber, I'm so sorry to make you relive that. It's so desperately sad and tragic and I'm sorry that Carter's gone oh me too but at the same time you said you were you told him you were proud of him and now you have this legacy that he's attached to yeah that allows you to have that that pride it's Carter's project but but when Carter died what what we heard was that closest air quality monitor was in Williams Lake, which was nearly 100 kilometers away from where you live. Yep. And if people have monitors closer to home, you know, I, I think your experience would, would have been different. And how do you think going forward it will change how people go about their day during wildfire seasons? I hope that people realize how serious asthma is and how serious the air quality is because we 
were on top of Carter's asthma. There was no indication that anything like this was going to happen. Like we checked and the air quality in Williams Lake wasn't bad. The smoke wasn't bad here. If we actually had those air quality monitors around our community, then it might have told us we were at like a five or a six and that there was something still in the air and it wasn't safe for him to be outside or like the days prior to that. Maybe it wasn't a good he shouldn't have been outside at all. And I guess that's something that's that's a reality for everyone too. Um, with climate change and and all the intensity of wildfire smoke, it means it makes what you're talking about that much more urgent. Yeah, people need to know that if the air quality isn't good, they need to be kept inside. If you have an air conditioner in your house, that's going to sur- or going to purify the air in a sense. People need to have access to air purification equipment and everyone needs the proper training to make sure that you're prepared for anything like someone that has asthma that says I can't I can't come to work today because it it's really dangerous outside for me that shouldn't be something that is like frowned upon. I, I want to talk now a, a little bit more uh, about Carter. I, I know you and so many others in your community miss him terribly. Can you tell me what you cherish most about his memory? Oh, man. <laughs> um, Carter was the sweetest kid, like the most loving kid. He would do anything for anyone. He was the one that if a kid at school had a bad day, they went and saw Carter because he could always cheer you up. He had the most contagious laugh that would just light up the room. And he loved to play soccer. He loved to dance. He loved music. And he just loved being around his family and his friends. He was the kid that was everybody's friend, whether you're 60 years old or you were three years old and he could tell you stories for hours. We used to always say to him, come on toots, like get to the point, buddy. (laughs) We, We don't need to know that you stubbed your toe and kicked a rock and blah, blah, blah. We don't need to know every single little detail, but man, that's something that I would give anything to hear one of his long winded two hour stories that really should have taken three minutes. Oh, I wish I could have met him. He sounds amazing. <laughs> I'm, he was. What do you think he would have thought of Carter's project? I think he's proud. He was a kid that would have moved mountains in this world. He would have done something amazing. And the fact that we are able to help him still do something amazing is something we're incredibly proud of and proud of him for being the face of it. He just sounds like an amazing kid. And Amber Vi, I just want to thank you so much for giving me the time to talk about him and, and what he was able to do and what he's done Yeah. Um, to make the world a better place. Thank you. Thank you.
Now, before we go, I want to let you know about a story we're working on. Our youth climate columnist, Aishwarya Batur, will be back, and she's going to share what she's seeing and hearing from those in the youth climate movement these days. And as we head toward this year's International Climate Conference in the United Arab Emirates, we'll talk about why she thinks those events are so critical, despite their often disappointing outcomes. Spoiler alert, the reason has to do with young people like her. That's coming up on What on Earth. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by Vivian Luck, Rachel Sanders, Danielle Piper, Molly Siegel, Matthias Wolfson, and Catherine Rolfson. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.